The foundations of the Ninth Legion of Spain can be traced back to the end of the Roman Republic during the reign of the First Triumvirate. The Ninth Legion was known to be recruited by Pompey the Great, however, was placed into the command of Julius Caesar. In the First Triumvirate's session or, or division of the Roman Empire, so to speak, in which each gained individual powers, Julius Caesar was assigned proconsulship and governorship of three provinces Narbonensis, which was southern Gaul, Cisalpine Gaul, which was Italy north of the Po River, and Illyria. These three provinces granted him the four legions, seven, eight, nine, and ten, but he eventually raised four more to help with his eventual campaign in Gaul. In the Gallic Wars, the Ninth Legion participated heavily in the wars against the Nervii in Belgica, which is modern-day Belgium, believe it or not, and was saw extensive combat throughout the entirety of the Gallic Wars. Although it was not one of the first legions taken with Caesar on his first expedition to Britain, it was one of the five legions taken by him on his second expedition. And in 52 BC, it formed the large Roman army that would eventually put down the Gallic Wars at the Battle of Alesia, which would see the death of centralized Gallic resistance. Following this, on the 10th of January, 49 BC, Julius Caesar led the 8th Legion from the, his province of Cisalpine Gaul across the Rubicon in invasion of Italy. He claimed the need to vindicate his name and position against Pompey and enemies in the Senate, which were, which were plotting to, to essentially deal a death blow to his political career and claiming him to be a tyrant. The 9th Legion, along with all the legions of the Gallic Wars, remained loyal to Julius Caesar, and the speed of the 8th Legion upon its initial invasion across the Rubicon completely shocked the Roman world as it was able to speedily make its way across Italy, forcing the Senate and Pompeian faction to essentially go into exile in the east. This gave Julius Caesar an extensive recruiting crown to replenish many of the legions, including the 9th, and raise four more legions, the 1st through the 4th, to help supplant his force. Eventually, in the summer of 48 BC, following victories against the Pompeian faction in Spain, Julius Caesar transitioned a large contingent of his army across the Adriatic and to invade the Pompeian heartlands in the provinces of Greece. In the eventual battles of Pharsalus and in the Pharsalus campaign, Julius Caesar had 80 cohorts, which would roughly equivalent of 22,000 men. This was an undersized army, as the legions at his disposal were not at full strength, despite recruiting efforts, due to the wars in Spain and still making up for casualties in the Gallic Wars. He specifically notes only three legions that he took with him, the 10th, the 8th, and of course, the 9th. However, there were contingents of other legions raised, the 1st through the 4th, then the 10th through the 12th, that he brought along with him. This uh, this this is a good moment to pause and ask what these contingents really looked like. As these contingents were known in the Roman terminology as vexillations, and vexillations would become increasingly important throughout the Augustan era. In fact, we've already somewhat seen one at the very in beginning and introduction of this podcast. However, a vexillation was a Roman segment of a of a Roman legion that was assigned to a different frontier from usual to help support Roman 
operations in that area. For instance, let's say that an emperor was launching a campaign against the Persians in the east. What he would do is he would approach legions on the Rhine and take individual cohorts or three or four cohorts from each legion out of these legions on the Rhine to help support him in the east. These would be known as vexillations, which would be, again, certain parts of a legion that would be assigned elsewhere than where they are currently deployed. So in the Battle of Pharsalus, despite Julius Caesar only having three legions, which would number roughly 15 to 16,000 men, he in fact had roughly 22,000 men from cohorts and vexillations of other legions supporting his forces there. The Battle of Pharsalus is one of the more tactical, brilliant uh, displays for Julius Caesar, as his men were outnumbered roughly two to one by a Pompeian force that was fully manned and numbered close to 45,000 men as he had been able to bring roughly 11 legions to the battlefield. Caesar deployed in the usual three lines of the Roman military fashion, the triple axis formation, that was still in use during this time, despite the erosion of the manipular force into the, into the force that we see now. However, he had a fourth reserve line of one cohort of infantry per legion to counter outflanking by Pompey's much more superior cavalry. Pompey's legions met Caesar's infantry at the halt in a deep formation, while his cavalry attempted to drive off Caesar's. However, Caesar's fourth line defeated the enemy cavalry and then was able to flank the legions of Pompey, essentially winning a very decisive victory for Caesar. According to Caesar, Pompey lost 15,000 of his 45,000 men, whereas Caesar only lost 200. Of course, what is, what is a very good thing to note about Roman statistics and casualties is that we have to take almost everything we see with a grain of salt, because men such as Caesar are, are not uncommon in the Roman world in attempting to paint their victories as extremely decisive. In a climactic battle of will where 45,000 men met 22,000 men for a couple of hours, it's hard to imagine that Pompey's men lost 15,000 men to just 200. That casualty ratio, it makes very little sense. However, it's the only source we have on the subject, so we are forced to accept Caesar's essential proclamation that he was able to basically win a battle relatively completely unscathed. After the Battle of Pharsalus, Julius Caesar was able to essentially win the Civil War as Pompey retreated to Egypt where his head was cut off by the pharaoh. And Caesar campaigned in Africa against the remnants of the Pompeian faction led by Cato the Younger. In this battle, in the battles, he took at Thapsus in Africa against Cato the Younger. He was, he was granted, he's not granted, he used the 8th and 14th legions whereas the ninth remained in Italy. As the Caesar-Pompeian War drew to a close and Caesar was eventually assassinated in 44 BC, we see the eventual rise of the Second Triumvirate, led by Julius Caesar's right-hand man, Marcus Antony, the Tribune of the Plebes at the time, his master of horse, Lepidus, and his adopted son, Octavius. Eventually, the much less ambitious and focused Lepidus lost power to Antony and Octavian, respectively, and was sidelined by the latter. 
and the war the, the war path was set for Antony and Octavian to meet to decide the fate of the Roman world. Of course, this meeting took place in the Battle of Actium, 31 BC, off the coast of Greece. In this battle, it is known that Antony's legions consisted of what would eventually become imperial legions as well, such as the 3rd Gallic Legion, the 3rd Cyrenaican Legion, the 5th Alidae Legion, the 6th Ferrata Legion, the 10th Gemina Legion, or Caesar's 10th Legion itself, the, inf the infamous, uh, the famous and most favored of Caesar's legions, and perhaps the 4th Scythica and 7th Fulminata Legion. We lack convenient sources for Octavian's forces. However, we might be able to include the legions 1 Germanica, 2nd Augusta, 3rd Augusta, 4th Macedonica, 4th Scythica, 5th Macedonica, 8th Augusta, and, of course, the 9th Legion. Of course, we do not know for certain if these legions can be traced to their Republican remnants or be traced further into the reign of the empire, but we know that there was a 9th Legion that saw the battlefield or the Battle Siege, I suppose, and the Battle of Actium, in which Octavian's fleet, led by the brilliant Agrippa, was able to decisively defeat Antony and Cleopatra's fleet, essentially allowing Augustus complete dominance of the Roman world. As the Augustan settlement was reached in 27 BC, the Ninth Legion of Spain was returned to its namesake. One of the first and most important military struggles for Octavian, or the now Augustus, was to fully pacify and organize the province of Spain. Throughout the duration of the Roman Republic, since Roman, the advent of Roman Republican interests in Spain following the Second Punic War, the Spanish frontier had proven to be quite a conundrum for Roman forces. It was made up of tribes that did not fight in the traditional sense and were much more attuned to guerrilla fighting. These tribes would, in some cases, be allied to Rome in one war and then enemies in the next. And it was almost impossible to sincerely operate in the field that the peninsula had been pacified. By the reign of Augustus, the majority of the peninsula had acquiesced to Roman rule. However, the north, the Celtiberian area, which more in modern day corresponds to Galicia or Navarra and Castile, still remained fiercely independent of Rome. For decades, Roman commanders had led their troops into this area only to feel, feel, face massive casualties. Historical examples include the Gracchi brothers, who both served in Spain and both saw extensive, extensive Roman defeats in this area. As such, Augustus' first course of action was to finish a long and protracted war that had been developing for centuries and, offend, and finally conquer the remainder of the Spanish Peninsula. This was one of the only known times that Augustus himself took the field of battle as an emperor, where he led legions himself in Spain. But he, led the, he left the majority of the campaign to his right-hand man, Agrippa. And of course, the legions initially signed to Spain, three of them included the Ninth Legion of Spain. This war, known as the Cantabrian Wars, lasted from 29 to 19 BC and were ferocious. Yet again, the Cantabrian tribes were tribes that simply would not acquiesce to Roman authority. There was not really a decisive battle, such as Actium or 
or Elysia or Zara, where the Romans were able to field their army against the Cantabrians and win the day. It was a long, protracted war of sieges and guerrilla ambushes. However, after 10 years, the Roman legions were able to finally, finally have victory. According to Augustine settlement that we and the legion assignments that we know of, just after the Cantabrian Wars, the Ninth Legion of Spain was able to, to essentially remain in Spain. This is where it would operate. This is where it would have its recruitment base. And this is where it would essentially be headquartered for the remainder of the empire. Uh, it is also at this point we should recognize that the name of the Legion, the Ninth Legion of Spain, does come from Spain. However, this is not because it was from Spain. It's because at this point, it earned its distinguished service, I suppose, from its service in Spain. Uh, Roman legions were numbered. However, their individual monikers were usually given in appreciation of a service or feat. Sometimes they were awarded based on where they were recruited from. But by this point, in the Augustan era at least, this was much less common and more these were given because of the feats of these legions rather than anything else. As I've noted up until this point, Caesar's Ninth Legion was known simply as the Ninth Legion, uh, and so was Octavian's. These two legions that we assume were the same were always known as the Ninth Legion. However, due to its extensive service throughout the ten years of the Cantabrian Wars, the legion earned the moniker of Hispania, or the Ninth Legion of Spain. Of course, this would become quite ironic, as we eventually find the legion as far away from Spain as you can imagine in the northern realm of the empire facing Britons. However, this was commonplace throughout the entire Roman Empire. Examples otherwise include the 10th Pretensus Legion, uh, an example founded by... This legion was founded by Octavian, and it was known as the 10th Legion of the Strait. This, again, was founded in Spain, and it was known for its service near the Gibraltar region, as it was founded there, it was of the Strait, of the Strait of Gibraltar. We have the 10th Gemina Legion. The 10th Gemina Legion is the twinned 10th Legion. This was founded with another legion and was sent, essentially given the moniker or of twin. So Roman legions were given an individual kind of title to go along with their number. And this helps foster a sense of individual loyalty or buy into the legion. This was also a place where you could have the legions be able to earn extensive uh, extensive praise through their names. For example, you have the 10th, the 20th Valeria Victrix Legion. The 20th Valeria Victrix Legion was the 20th Valorous and Victorious Legion. And it was able to earn these titles through extensive campaigns in Germany Again, with Germanicus, at the Battle of the Angrivar Barrier, at the Battle of Idisvasius in 16 AD, it was able to earn this title of the, the Valley and the Victorious Legion after years of service. It was given the title of Victrix or Victorious. So the Roman Ninth Legion has served admirably during the Republican era as a vanguard legion for Julius Caesar's invasion of Gaul. And following becomes one of his victorious legions at the Battle of Pharsalus, ending the civil war with Pompey. Following the death of Caesar in 44 BC, it becomes 
one of the core legions of Octavian's forces in the Second Triumvirate, and sees extensive service at the Battle of Actium. Finally, now under the reign of the Emperor Augustus, it serves with distinguished merit in the Cantabrian Wars that finally pacified the Iberian Peninsula throughout the initial phases of Augustus' reign from 29 to 19 BC, a 10-year conflict of guerrilla warfare and hostile populace. It is in this, it is in this war that it earns its, its moniker, the name of Hispania, the Ninth Legion of Spain. So following 19 BC, the Legion is based in Spain and serves roughly the, uh, this, a similar peacekeeping role as many Roman legions face at this time. It builds roads, it builds aqueducts, and it, it helps quell what's left of the Roman, of the local rebellion. We know from inscriptions found in northern Italy from veterans that the legion's name had become commonplace at this point, this moniker, so to speak, of Hispania, as we find the inscription of a former veteran of the legion, Aquileia, uh, on his tombstone that he served in the Legio 9 Hispania. So at this point, it is clear that, that the Ninth Legion is a Spanish legion. However, in AD 14, the local tribes of Pannonia, modern-day Hungary, had grown quite annoyed with the Roman invasions and Roman oppression there. The Romans had expanded into the province and defeated most of the local tribes. However, much like Vercingetorix, the tribes rose again in open revolt, attempting to throw off Roman rule. The Ninth Legion was, therefore, told to uh, march and deal with the fighting. And unlike using a full vexillation, the severity of this revolt necessitated that the entirety of the Ninth Legion be taken from Spain and moved to Pannonia. It was eventually based in Siscia, modern-day Sisak, Croatia, in Illyria, where it would serve against the Pannonian forces, but where, we, from what we now know today, it was based on from 22 AD at the end of the Pannonian Revolt onward. So for the next two decades, despite being earning its distinguished service in Spain and being based for its longest period of time up to this point in Spain, due to the severity of the Pannonian Revolt, it was moved to Pannonia and it remained there for the next two decades. In 42 AD, however, the Ninth Hispania was ac accompanied the Emperor Claudius or at least Vexillations did, in his ambitious invasion of Britain. Claudius was the most ambitious territorial em expansion uh, emperor, I suppose, since Augustus, and launched an invasion of Britain of, multiple of several legions. And we know that Vexillations of Pannonian legions, such as the Ninth, existed in this large army that took the field of battle against the Britons upon the invasion. Inscriptions suggest that the Ninth Hispania was present in Britain from the Spart, initially at Londinium, and it advanced north into the territory of the Brigantes tribe. 
It has been suggested that the Legion now established a base at Lindum, which would become Lincoln, but the funerary inscriptions that form the basis of this suggestion are of uncertain date. However, we do know that from the beginning of Claudius's advances in England, uh, in modern-day England, the Ninth Hispania provided a very central role. We do not know if the full legion was present during his initial invasion in 43 AD. However, we do know that at least a significant portion of it in vexillations was. And even then, thereafter, as the 40s turned into the 50s AD, the legion was most certainly one of the permanent legions based in Britain. We do not know at what point it transitions from a Pannonian legion on the Balkan and Danube frontier into a frontier legion in Britain. However, we do know that the 9th Hispania Legion by the 50s AD is a legion based primarily in Britain. It is now that we can catch up its service record to the story I presented to you at the very beginning of this podcast. As the 50s turned into the 60s, the Romans' treatment of their British, of the British tribes, can be seen as abusive. What the Romans do is they they lend out loans that or that tend to be much more predatory than the British tribes realize, and they loan to these new the tribes under their their control at this point at exorbitant rates. And then upon the death of the Iceni tribes king, they call in all their loans at the same time, essentially using this as an argument to repossess massive amounts of land and essentially wiping their economic and land-based footprint off the map of Britain itself. As such, the the Iceni tribe, the Brigantes tribe, these tribes of Britain are furious. Gover- what becomes commonplace throughout the history of the Roman Empire is that most local revolts do not occur because the Romans are or because the, the let me rephrase, they don't occur because the locals are in dire need of freedom from the beginning. We see this in some occasions, such as the Jewish revolts that are commonplace, where this people, the, the Jewish people in Judea, are consistently vying for their own freedom. However, most revolts are much more in certain in the sense of self-interest against uh, a, a mismanagement by the government. In this case, in Britain, if the Romans had governed the province well from the beginning without now corruption or allowing predatory loans towards the British tribes, it can be argued that the revolt of Boudicca would never be necessary in the first place. However, these predatory loans and the eventual calling up of these loans following her father's death forced Boudicca's tribe, the Iceni, into direct action. What is, what is also noted is that this, this revolt eventually becomes much more personal because in the enforcement of calling up these loans, Roman officials and Roman soldiers are very typically brutal uh, in their treatment of the natives. After the death of King Presitalskis, I'm sorry, I pronounced that absolutely awfully, Presutagus of the Iceni, Roman soldiers, because of this, uh, this loan ordering, took the opportunity to plunder his kingdom, cashing in on these predatory loans. And in this, they enslaved many subjects of the Iceni. And then, in the perhaps most flashpoint incident, 
the soldiers took a chance to rape his daughters. The historian Cassius Dio also claims that the Romans had forced loans. This is all supported by works of, the, of Cassius Dio, who claims that this rape would became a, a personal rallying cry for the Iceni tribe. Prasutica's wife, Boudica, essentially becomes the leader of this revolt. These tribes of Britain were now alienated. They had been abused. The daughters of the king of the perhaps most prominent tribe, the Iceni, had been raped and publicly defiled. Uh, thousands of their people had been enslaved. And economically, they lost all independence as these Roman loan sharks had essentially ruined the local economy. As such, they were left with only one option, which was open revolt. The governor of Britain at the time, Suetonius Paulinus, was at the time launching extensive campaigns against the Druid peoples in Wales. Uh, he used two, most of the forces in Britain at the time to accomplish his task. However, he did leave the Ninth Legion back at its base in Lincoln, or London. Or Lindum, I apologize. He left the Ninth Legion back at its base in Lindum and took the remaining of the troops, of, the remainder of the troops left in Britain into Wales to deal with revolt. In Colchester, or Camulodunum, the Romans had established a veteran community, and the Iceni rebels under the wife of the king, Boudicca, took the opportunity to deal a, 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 an initial death blow to the Romans. A, a, this was a city that was not Britain, British in the slightest, so they had no real hesitation. It was made up completely of Roman citizens and Roman veterans. And as such, they saw ample opportunity to take a rich settlement and bring it down to their level, supposedly. They destroyed the entire city. They then sacked Londinium and Verulamanium, or St. Albans. And it's again at this point that we see the Ninth Hispania enter the field of battle under its commander, Patilius, Quintus Patilius Surialis. At the time that Surialis makes the move with his four cohorts, as mentioned in the first episode, he is under the impression that this revolt is much more localized and inefficient and has not made a significant move yet. He believes the city of Camulodunum is safe, it is under siege, but it can be relieved. As such, he only takes a minor force to deal with what he considers a minor problem. And as mentioned in the first episode, the four cohorts he brings with him are almost completely wiped out, except for the cavalry, cavalry contingent that he brings. So, in a word, the Ninth Legion of Spain has been brought down to maybe half, half of its troops left. The Romans in the province are now left with no defenses at all, as the remainder of the Roman troops in the province are now in Wales fighting. They have one legion remaining, half strength, and the veteran fortresses of Camulodunum and Lindinium and, and Verulamanium are completely gone. However, the governor, Suetonius Paulinus, a very, how do you say, harsh but effective Roman commander 
immediately wheeled around to take command of the situation. He brings back from his campaigns in Wales the 14th and 20th legions, and they begins and he begins to march to deal with Boudicca's forces. He brings together the remnants of the 9th legion, and they they march to put an end to Boudicca's response. What is again noteworthy is by this point, let's let's give you the numbers of what's happening. Boudicca's revolt has at this point ballooned to a size that, well, is nothing close to what Serialis might have thought. He headed first for Deva, and then to what we now know as modern-day Watling Street, the military road which sliced across England all the way from Londinium to the Thames. Paulinus would have carefully weighed his troops' options. The 9th Hispania, as mentioned, has just lost most upwards to 3,000 men through Serialis' rashness, and as such, he doesn't want to be rash or over-aggressive in his own pursuits. He has two legions with him, the 20th and the 14th, along with the 9th. And he writes that, Tacitus writes that the army that Paulinus puts together com- combines to be roughly 20,000 20, men at its height. He's met with veterans from local communities that have been able to flee, and he forms these into essentially evocati legionnaires or or retired legionnaires that are now pressed back into service. And essentially he has a force of at most 20,000, but anywhere from the range of 10 to 20,000 men that he has now to deal with a revolt that has ballooned to a size of over 100,000. Paulinus decides to press on to London. At this point, he crosses the bridge of the Temesa River and is and decides to set camp on what is now where we now consider where the we do not know where the battle of Watling Street occurs. However, what we do know is that it's... As he pressed on to Londinium, Paulinus quickly realizes that the rebellion is much more serious than he thought. And thousands and thousands of rebels are flocking across the province. And as such, he, he wheels north from Londinium and reaches today's Warwickshire. He realizes that if he continues to retreat north, he's eventually going to come face-to-face with the Scottish frontier, and behind him the rebels would be in possession of most of the entire province. And despite now being hugely outnumbered, Paulinus decides that the time was to fight. He, he would, as Cassius Dio reports him famously saying, conquer them or die on the spot. We don't know again where the battle takes place. Paulinus decides, however, to to stand and fight, build a long, build a large camp, and and he takes a, a ride to try and look for a better battle site. However, before he's able to do this, he is eventually discovers the mainstay of Boudicca's forces. After his scouts had assured him that there were no Britons to the real, Paulinus had his army form up at the at the place of battle, and at this point. Boudicca's forces 
had ballooned from 100,000 when he had first arrived in Londinium, or the ruins of it, to now, according to Cash's deal, 250,000 men. It was by far the largest army since Alicia, or Vercingetorix, that the Romans had faced in one single mass. And it was the largest army to ever do battle on the shores of Britain. On Paulinus' orders, the Roman troops formed three wedge formations. The 14th occupied the center, the 20th and the Evocati cohorts joined the right, and auxiliary cohorts were on either side. The 9th Legion joined as well the 20th Legion and its veterans. However, again, it's at this point the 9th Legion's effectiveness was mostly as a support unit. So the Romans basically created different wedge formations to try and mitigate the the effectiveness of a mass formation such as 250,000 men that they were about to face. And a wedge formation really numbers isn't crucial in what's happening. It's keeping your position. For an enemy force attacking a wedge formation, you would be put in between two wedges, which means at that point, your numbers don't really mean much when you're still being flanked by either side of enemy forces. So he was trying to mitigate what obviously could be considered a future military disaster by creating these wedge formations. At this point, the rebels were very confident of success, so they had their families parked with, with their wagons full of Roman booty behind the, their own lines of battle, and they watched as the Romans donned their helmets and body armor However, most British warriors did not have helmets or armor and maybe had a flat oak shield with hide and maybe, maybe a, if we could be generous, an iron shield. But for the most part, it's a, Roman, a, a British warrior was with no armor, no helmet, and with a small oak shield alongside their own short. Some British nobles were equipped with captured Roman arms, and of course they had the famous Celtic chariots. Draw the number fielded of chariots by Boudicca's forces is unknown, but they're they're not really likely to have been very numerous or have a significant role in the battle. However, Boudicca herself appeared in her own chariot. And she had her daughters, the famous daughters of the king, before her in the chariot. And she galloped alongside the battlefield in front of her forces, urging her warriors to die rather than live under Roman rule, according to Tacitus. She reminds them how they had punished the Ninth Hispania Legion and assured them that the rest of the Roman troops on the island were cowering in their camp and planning to flee. She says, according to Cassius Dio, let us show them that the, they are hares and foxes trying to rule over dogs and wolves. Against such massive odds, it's now probably apparent we should, we should make note that most Roman legionaries in this battle were most likely looking for survival. At this point, Aeneas Julius Agricola, a 19-year-old junior tribune in the army, who would eventually become famous, and the ninth would fight under him, as we will see later in this episode, said that they had to fight for their lives before they could think of fighting for victory in this battle, according to Tacitus. Yet, Paulus himself was confident of success. He addressed his troops, telling them to close up the ranks 
and having discharged your javelins, then with shields and swords continue the work of bloodshed and destruction. The Romans did not advance but stood their ground waiting, and the legions kept their position as enemy forces swarmed their wedges. However, the Britons quickly realized that the strategy of Paulinus, the wedge formations, as far as advanced, as far as you advanced as a Briton soldier, by the time you get to the front lines, you were now flanked with very little chance of retreat. And as such, the Roman formation acted much like a buzzsaw. As more Britain troops were feeded into these wedges, the Romans, more heavily armored, much more disciplined and led more tactfully than Serialis, were a miniature buzzsaw going to work cutting through the lightly armored and ill-disciplined Britain forces. Boudicca escapes from the battlefield within a few two days. Within a few days, she takes poison and kills herself. However, by the end of the battle, which lasted a day and a night, and the next day, as the Romans eventually even take over the enemy camp and enslave those there and retaking their booty, the British warriors and civilians that died numbered close to eighty thousand. And with Roman casualties once again fielding very low at 400. At this point, the British revolt is over. The legions in Britain had completely dealt with Boudicca's revolt altogether. Uh, the remainder of her forces were scattered, and slowly Paulinus waged a very bloody campaign to root them out. And the Ninth Hispania, as we will now see, was able to essentially rebound and reinforce itself. So over the next eight years, Paulinus with his legions went underwent a brutal campaign of repression against what was left of any rebellious tribes in Britain. And, and at this point, the fires of rebellion had already been stoked out by such a disastrous defeat at Watling's Reek, in which 80,000 Britons had died under maybe 400 Romans, so that by the end of Boudicca's revolt in 61 AD, there would never again be an uprising of British tribes of, uh, in the Isles. The, the Romans had completely snuffed out any whiff of rebellion. And this was commonplace in Roman history. What would, it, what would happen is a Roman invasion would initially topple existing tribal or, or royal organization in a region. After significant fighting, the Romans would, would plant their own province there, attempting at first to work with the locals in the region. However, due to anything from harsh Roman rule to cultural differences, to most most of the time gubernatorial ineptitude, the locals would revolt en masse, and the Romans would then crush the revolt and would be able to pacify the province. This is seen in from the beginning in Gaul. The same can be said for Vercingetorix. Pannonia, in which a revolt that lasts two years is put down by the Roman legions, including the Ninth, and the province becomes a bulwark for the Roman Danube defenses. 
Britain, where Boudicca's revolt is harshly put down and Britain becomes a Roman province with very little signs of local resistance thereafter. And the probably most famous but and successful in Germania, where the ineptitude of Quintilius Varus leads to the destruction of three legions, and the Romans are not able to replant their province there. The Romans depended on trying at first to coerce the local tribes, but however, due to, again, the corruption inherent of the relatively total power of Roman governors, they would eventually have to put down annoyed local resistance. But in the aftermath of the Boudicca's campaign, again, the, the Ninth Legion has taken significant casualties. The 21st Legion is forced to, which is at this time based on the Rhine, is forced to give over 2,000 of its men, as the 21st was fully strength, was at full strength, it is forced in the aftermath of Boudicca Revolt to ship over an entire vexillation, 2,000 of his men over to be reassigned to the 9th Hispania Legion to bring it back up to full strength to be used by Paulinus to crush what's left of the local resistance. So in the aftermath of Boudicca's revolt in 62 AD, the 9th Legion of Spain has taken a beating and has essentially had to narrowly avoid being crushed by Boudicca's or wiped out by Boudicca, but is able through good governance to and leadership by Paulus to help quell a local rebellion. Following Boudicca's revolt, the Ninth Legion again is, is the local one of the three local legions in in Britain to help pacify the remaining remainder of the province and supplant Roman authority there. However, in the 80s AD, the same junior tribune mentioned in putting down Boudicca's revolt that said that the Romans were really fighting to survive, Agricola, eventually decides upon an ambitious path in his governorship of the province. Starting in 82 AD, Agricola begins to use the legions in the province to launch expeditions north. Traditionally, the Roman province of Britain encompasses all of what we now know of as England and Wales, and it did not expand into Scotland. However, Agricola decides to launch expeditions into Scotland itself. In 82 AD, he launches expeditions to the west of the, of the region, and starting in 83, he launches a large, almost circumnavigation of Scotland along the eastern coast. Along with his forces, numbering roughly 20,000 men, are of course members, or not members, the entirety of the Ninth Legion of Spain. Along the march, the Ninth Legion of Spain's reputation as the legion that had been almost destroyed by Boudicca doesn't seem to go away. The Picts and Scots seem to actually routinely target the Ninth Legion, as opposed to the other two legions, trying their best to try and defeat that legion and embarrass the Romans. The legion is constantly harassed no matter where it goes, as opposed to other legions who go through the same areas without any trouble. The legion is at one point, according to Tacitus, the legion is almost completely trapped by Caledonian tribes, and only the appearance of the general Agricola himself 
does the Legion actually escape being wiped out for a second time? So the Legion's not doing too well, but Agricola's advance is going quite well. With auxiliary support, with the support of the Roman fleet, he advances across the entirety of the eastern shores of Scotland until he eventually comes face to face with a large picked army, numbering close to thirty to 40,000 men strong. In this battle, the Battle of Mons Grappius, the farthest battle fought for Roman shores, the most north a Roman army will ever march, the very foothills of Scotland, the Romans completely decimate the Scots there. It is uh, known at this battle that the Picts used chariots, much like the Britons, but at this point, however, members of the Ninth Legion and members of any Roman legions are no longer really intimidated by chariots. They had seen them for centuries at this point, and at this point, they're nothing more, of, honestly, of a clumsy war weapon that can be easily exploited by Roman men in battle. By the end of the battle, the Roman general could count 10,000 picks casualties for roughly 500 of his men. Yet again, another monumental Roman victory. However, unlike the battles against Boudicca, which helped pacify an entire Roman province, Agricola's advance achieved very little. It was, if anything, a, a glory project. The, the invasion was allowed Rome to explore Scotland, but get much less from it. They got some notable booty from their advances north, but nothing, nothing consequential. And essentially, with the Romans not establishing a province in Scotland, it was a very fruitless campaign. Agricola, however, was able to gain some fame and notoriety from it, enough to make the reigning emperor at the time in 84 AD, Domitian, quite jealous and as he was recalled to Rome. Yet, again, the, the actual fate of Rome and Britain did not hinge in the balance of this campaign. And in reality, there was nothing really important for this campaign. So following the campaign of 84 AD, the Ninth Legion of Hispania retires to its base at Ibericum, modern-day York, where it remains a Roman frontier legion for Roman forces on the province. At this point, we should probably discuss the Roman legionary fortress. At Ibericum, we are able to see a great design of a Roman legionary fortress. The legionary fortress was most likely established Interestingly enough, by the very same rash and horrifying commander, Petilius Serialis, uh, before the Boudicca Revolt. And its original defenses consisted of a single ditch and rampart surmounted by a timber palisade enclosing 50 acres of land, where 5,000 men would be able to be housed in individual barracks for each of their assigned cohorts, with roads of all. all parallel and perpendicular to each other, completely organized. And inscriptions reveal that these defenses were eventually replaced in stone by the legion at the very beginning of the 2nd century AD. Uh, inscriptions in the, of the uh, legion from 107 BC exist, where you can see the grave site of Roman legionary sol uh, soldiers of the 9th legion. And we can get a sense that by 107 AD, where we see some of these inscriptions, that the Roman presence in Britain is essentially concrete. That 
especially the Roman legionary presence of the Ninth Legion, is concrete as well, and that this is a British legion. And that Roman tides have turned to fruit, essentially, in their, in their pacification of the province, which is now essentially fully Romanized. However, in the next episode, we are going to talk about how, although we have an inscription dating at, a, at the legionary fortress at Aburicum of 107 AD, and despite the, the fortress being now in stone with three permanent Roman legions in the province, the legion will, in the 130s AD, disappear off the face of the earth. We will not know what happens to it, and I will discuss the two prevailing theories of what, what's happening to this Roman legion in the next episode.